That was good, wasn't it? Blessing. Well, we gather here this Easter weekend, and we are joining with millions of other people, literally around the world, who will be and are celebrating uh, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is a great weekend, best weekend if you're a Christian of the year, and I am glad that you are here this morning. What I want to do now is uh, to walk us through uh, the rest of a typical Easter and just kind of see what's going to happen from here. Here you are at the traditional 9.30 service, I think was the time. And uh, so when we're done here and what, when most people are done with the service, what, what's next? What's next? Lunch. Okay, lunch. Uh, and this lunch will be either at home or better would be out, no dishes, no cleanup, no mess. It's better in and out. Uh, might have family joining, meeting somewhere, doing that. Some of you are probably looking forward to that. What's next? Nap? Did I hear nap? Okay, so Easter nap. <laughs> it's a very sacred part of the of the Easter celebration. Okay, after the nap, uh, then what? Looks like a nice day out. You might sort of get up and walk around a little and see things and kick around the yard a little, walk the dog, walk the kid, something. And uh, then what? What's next? Easter leftovers, possibly. All right, little like snack, evening snack, dinner of some kind. Might finish the day out with some other sort of relaxing activity. Then we go to bed. What's next? Wake up Monday morning. And for most people, it's back to life as normal, right? Back to work, back to school, back to homemaking, back to whatever it is that normal life Entails. And this is repeated year in and year out with Easter celebrations, uh, the, the, the big celebration. But by tomorrow, what difference is it really going to make for many people? Think about this on a global scale. There are about 2.1 billion Christians in the world. So there's approximately 2.1 billion people who are probably gathering in churches in different places and celebrating the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That means there's about 4 billion people who are not. So for 2 billion people, yeah. For 4 billion people, tomorrow, how many papers will cover the story of the billions that gathered to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? You realize if just a fraction of the 2 billion people gathered to do anything else, I mean, just a fraction of them, rock concert, uh, political rally, you know, save the snail, some kind of a thing like that. It would be front page. It would be considered the greatest uh, gathering of humanity in world history. And yet, two billion people doing what we're doing here today, and uh, there won't be a front page story about it at all. This is the world that we live in. And I'm kind of trying to point out the disparity here. There's kind of a schizophrenia here. There's a craziness here between celebrating, if we, if we really believe what we're celebrating happened and is true, then this is a, indeed a celebration. But then the next day, 
For many people, even people going to churches, life gets back to normal. My friends, if the resurrection happened, there is no such thing as normal anymore. If it really happened, it is the biggest deal, the biggest thing, the most transformational reality in all of human history. And if we truly believe it, then it is transformational to us. But there are people that it is, and there are people that it is not. And I want to talk with you about what makes the difference. What makes the difference? And in doing that, to talk with you about the, the, uh, the what of the resurrection and, and the why of it. And if you're a bottom line kind of person, many people are, they don't want the fluff, just give me the bottom line. This message is for you. This is the bottom line of Easter. This is what it's really all about. And I want to, uh, to uh, teach this to you, talk to you about it with from a passage that is just a few chapters ahead of where we are in our teaching series here at Bethel. We're working through the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that Paul wrote uh, 2,000 years ago to a city that was, to a church in a city that culturally uh, was very much like our own. They were high value on education, high value on business, a lot of pursuit of money, but with a dark underside of corruption and idolatry. Does that sound familiar to you? This is the world that we live in. Corinth was very much like America. And Paul writes to this church, bottom line, here's what he says. Chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is a, uh, Peter's other name, the apostle Peter, appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which is another way of saying some of them have died. Uh, then he appeared, Skip ahead of that. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, this passage is significant for many reasons, but here's the big one. This is the oldest statement of the Christian faith in the history of Christianity. This is written before the Gospels were completed, before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, before the Apostles' Creed, before any other statement that we have. This creed goes all the way back very close to the resurrection event itself. Here's how close. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this, was converted to Christianity two years after the, approximately two years after the resurrection. Three years after that, he went to Jerusalem and met with uh, Peter and James. So five years after the resurrection, Paul is talking to two guys who were there, who saw the resurrected Christ, and possibly was given this creed, which had already developed in the church, and was possibly a part of the early church's worship, where they would publicly quote this as a succinct statement of what the whole thing is all about, five years after the resurrection. Now, by history standards, this is so very, it's incredibly close. To give you an example, five years ago, Katrina wiped out New Orleans. Now, how long ago does that seem? Not so long. And do the New Orleans, New Orleansians, do they, do they remember that event very well? 
I think that they do. They're still talking about it, are they not? So to get five years, within five years of the resurrection of Christ and to have a statement that tells what happened by history standards is very close. And Paul considers these words of ultimate importance. You see that in the very first uh, verse there. For I delivered to you as of first importance, of priority importance, of preeminent importance, what he's about to say here. Paul wrote nearly half the New Testament, but this is what he says is the most important thing. This is the bottom line. This is what Christianity is all about. So here you have it, the bottom line of bottom lines for Easter. It begins with this statement. Christ died for our sins. If you want to know what this is about, it begins with Christ dying for our sins. So the bottom line of Easter begins not at the empty tomb, but it begins at the cross. And when we talk about the cross, we're talking about an ancient tool of execution. The Romans perfected it, and they killed thousands of people on these crosses. And to this day, it is viewed as the most excruciating, the most gruesome death that a person can die is to die on a Roman cross. Now, the reason that you have heard of crosses is probably not because of the thousands that they killed there, but because of one person that died on a cross. And it's identified here as Christ. Christ died on a cross. The focus of the creed, though, is not on what he died or how he died, but why he died. He died, it says, for our sins. Every word here is important. First of all, Christ. Christ died for our sins. Who's that talking about? Well, Christ is a title. His given name is Jesus. So you've probably heard of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the name given to him. Christ is a title that refers to him as the chosen one, as the Messiah, as the anointed one. Christ died for our sins. The Bible describes Christ as, first of all, God. His deity. He is the eternal God who was born of a virgin as a man. And so Jesus is the God-man. And he lived on this earth for 33 years and did all the sorts of things that we would expect God to do if he showed up around here. I mean, if God showed up in Crown Point and you had a chance to talk with him and you were wondering if he really was God, what would maybe be some of the things that you would ask him to, to, to do to prove it? Well, for me, I would say, I'd like to go golfing tomorrow. Could we have a nice day? And if he could control the weather in some way, then that would, I would start getting, I would start to get convinced that maybe this guy really is God. And if I, if I, uh, if I, if I was with him and um, I saw him feeding a, a multitude like us here in this room right now from a little wafer of some kind, I would start to get convinced that maybe this guy is more than your average person. This guy's got something special about him. And if I went over to St. Anthony's Hospital with him and he walked down the cancer ward and he goes, okay, you're healed and you're healed and you're healed and you're healed down the hallway and these people are all getting up, pulling the wires out and walking out the door, I would start to get convinced. And if he went over to the cemetery here in Crown Point or anyone in this area and he just said, alive, right about there I would be thinking, you know what, this guy is more than just a guy, he is 
God. He is who he claims to be. And these are all the things that Jesus did when he was here. All the things that we would maybe want to see God do to show us that he actually is God. Christ did them. So when we talk here about Christ dying for our sins, this is the person that he that is being described. The other side of this statement says that he died according to the scriptures. What is that talking about? Well, it's referring to the Old Testament. The Old Testament writings who or which describe in many, many places somebody that's going to come that is going to do the most remarkable things, including bearing our guilt and our sin. Let me give you an example. Isaiah 53, verse 4. As I read this, tell me if this sounds like anybody you might have heard of. Here's what it says. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Does that sound like anybody maybe you've ever heard of? Whose life reflects that, I wonder? 700 years before Christ showed up, this was written. Look what it says. Bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. If you know the story of what happened to Jesus and his betrayal from his inner circle and the disciples that abandoned him and the beatings and the, and the trial and the flogging and all the rest, that sounds a lot like him to me. How about you? I think so. And it goes on to talk about how he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. According to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. What this means is, is that Jesus was not the victim of circumstances or fate. He died according to a plan. A plan that has been in place for hundreds of years. He died according to God's will. He died for our sins. The physical suffering of Christ is not mentioned here, but the moral and the spiritual is. He died in our place. He died for our sins. Let's talk about sins a moment. Sins describes our condition before a holy God. We are sinners. We have violated his will. We have, we have rebelled against him. We are not his friends. We are his enemies. We are sinners. We are in a broken relationship with God. And we are in broken relationships with one another. Sins is not just our relationship with God, but it describes why living in this world stinks. Have you noticed? Sin hurts. It hurts. It explains why things happen in this world the way that they do. It explains all the things that people are going to do against one another today. It'll be in tomorrow's paper. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to include all kinds of bad things. You can't believe anybody would ever do something that somebody else like that, but they do. And it explains all of the uh, racism and the injustice and the hatred and the violence and all of the harsh words and the lying and the cheating and all the rest. It explains what this world is like. Have you noticed? This is a sinful world and it is filled with pain. And if you look around your block in your neighborhood, you can see that. And maybe today you can look around your home and maybe even your heart and see the pain that sin 
creates. We are sinners living in a sinful world. But this passage says that Christ died for our sins. In other words, he died as a substitute. He died in our place. He took the guilt that our sins require. I illustrated this a few weeks ago. I can't do any better than it. And still, this is still in our minds, I think. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again. Uh, did you know there's a little basketball tournament going on? Just a small little basketball tournament going on. I'm saying this to the right crowd because otherwise you would have been here last night possibly for our services. Uh-huh. I nailed some of you right there. I know I did. Uh, let's go Sunday, Hyundai, honey. I think it would be better on Sunday. So you watched the game last night. So you know that tomorrow the Butler Bulldogs are playing for the national championship, which I cannot believe, but that's wonderful, Indiana team. So this, if you watch the game tomorrow, this is what you're going to see over and over again, this theological truth played out. The coach of the Butler Bulldogs is going to do what coaches of basketball teams do. He's going to roam the sideline during the game, scowling and, you know, arms crossed like this. And periodically through the game, he is going to stop and he's going to look and he's going to look at the bench and he's going to say, you, you're in for him. And this fellow here is going to get up and take off his warm-ups and go check into the, at the table and go running out onto the court. And that guy is going to come running off of the court and take a seat on the bench. And that guy is in for him. He is his substitute. When Christ was on the cross, essentially, this is what God the Father did. He looked down at Jesus and he said, you are in for them. And he treated Jesus as if he was us, as if he had committed the sins that we have committed. He poured out his wrath on Jesus. Jesus died in our place. Or can I personalize this a second? He died for you. It's not just generic. He died for me. It's personal. He died in our place. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty our sins required. And the creed begins there. It goes on now. And it says this. Christ died for our sins. That he was buried. Buried. Now why would you include his burial? Is this not assumed that if he died that, that somebody buried him? Why is that important to the Christian faith? Well, here's why. Because it shows that he was dead. You don't bury live people. Burial means finality. Burial means that he was dead. If you've ever buried a loved one, then you probably know that sense as you stand by the graveside and they begin to lower the casket or they put the, begin to put the dirt over top. There is a sense of like this really, this is like, this is it. This is it. Christ was buried. Christ really was dead. And this is something very important for us to understand here because it, it fills the resurrection with meaning. We have to understand that he was dead. People question that. Well, maybe he was just sort of sick or tired or unconscious or something like that. And then he sort of came to after he was buried. All the evidence argues against that. 
The Roman executioners, let's talk about these guys a moment. To this day, if you study execution, you will find that the Romans are considered some of the best in history at knowing how to kill people. And the executioners were the experts in the Roman Empire of doing that. And on top of that, where was the hot spot in the Roman Empire? Where were there a lot of people that need to be, needed to be crucified? Palestine. The Jews were all the time rebelling and having all kinds of problems. They didn't send the B team to Palestine. This was the A team that was doing this. And these executioners validated that Jesus was dead. In fact, the Gospel of John goes on to say that they made doubly sure that he was dead. They already said he was dead. But one of the soldiers, the Gospel of John says, took a long spear and jabbed it into Jesus' uh, chest cavity. And John describes what came out of that uh, wound. And medical studies and all the rest have said, you know what? He was dead. He was dead. So the experts on execution said, this guy is dead. The Roman governor Pilate certified that he was dead. The friends that buried Jesus, if there was any indication as they were wrapping him and preparing him for burial that actually, you know what? I think he's maybe breathing there. Would they have put him in the grave? No. They would have stopped immediately, done anything they could to save him. They loved him. But they sat there and prepared his body and he was dead. Everybody that was there, the experts of the day and the friends and everyone else said he is dead and they buried him. The creed goes on now and here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Here's the thing that draws 2.1 billion people together. Here's what brings us together here today. No fanfare, no drum roll. This is what the creed says. Verse 4. He was raised on the third day. He died for our sins. He was really dead. And on the third day, he was resurrected. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about what happened in that moment. And the Gospels and the testimony of Scripture tell us that that morning, that Easter morning, that first Easter morning, early in the morning, at sunbreak, daybreak, I think is the right way to say that, at daybreak, God the Father exerted a power that only God has through the Holy Spirit into that little tomb where Jesus' body lay. And he, by his power, raised him back to life. And what that means is, is that the spirit of Jesus that he gave up on the cross when he said, it is finished, which had been in heaven since he died, was reunited. The personality, the person of Jesus was reunited with now a resurrected body. So that there was one moment when Jesus was dead and in the next milla moment, he was totally alive. Totally alive. Now, here's some other things that happened in the moment. 
there was an earthquake. In that moment that it happened, the earth began to shake, and the Roman soldiers who were the tough guys and were there watching this, they began to shake as well. It's the earthquake and the soldier shake that began to happen there. And whenever something big happens uh, in, in what God's doing, angels show up. And sure enough, angels show up at the place. So the soldiers fell down like dead men. The, the, the angels are there. Jesus is alive. The, the, the stone in front of the tomb is thrown out of the way. Women show up. The last thing that they're thinking is resurrection. They've come with anointing uh, spices for his dead body. They come and they see the angel and they look in and they see nothing's going on. The angel's like, why are you looking for the dead among the living? Didn't he tell you he was going to do this? And they're like, (laughs) and they take off and run and they go and tell the disciples. They said, he's gone. We don't know where he is. You've got to check this out. And so the disciples, they run to the tomb and they get there and they look in and they don't see anything and they don't know what's going on either. So the last thing that we can say is that anybody in this story was expecting a resurrection. The empty grave is one of the most compelling arguments for the resurrection. I hope you realize that when Christianity began just days after this event and they began proclaiming Jesus was alive... And all who believe in him will be saved. And thousands of people just like us are like, that's the message my heart has been longing for. And they're believing and they're becoming followers of Christ. All the Jewish leaders would have had to do, because remember the Jewish leaders, they're freaking out. They hated Jesus. The last thing they want is more followers of Jesus happening. And this church has begun and it's just taking over Jerusalem. All they would have had to do was to go to the tomb, exhume the body, display it all over in Jerusalem and say, there, what, this is a joke. Here he is. He's dead. Look at his body. And this whole thing would have gone away and you and I wouldn't be here today. But they didn't. And they didn't because they couldn't. And they couldn't because he wasn't there. There was no body. The smarty pants in the room right now are thinking to themselves, oh, but you know, an empty grave doesn't mean that he was resurrected. There's lots of other possible explanations for that. And you know what? I think we have to intellectually be honest enough to say that is true. Just because the grave is empty doesn't mean that somebody's been resurrected. There's probably empty graves at every cemetery in this neighborhood, you know? Things happen. That's why the creed goes on to say this, verse 5. And he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now here's what I want you to realize from this list of, of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus is that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people as alive. Not just a few, hundreds of people as alive. And all of them had personal reasons not to believe that he would ever be resurrected or that he was resurrected. Now think with me a moment. The culture of the day, they did not believe in a kind of personal resurrection like Jesus was talking about. They believed in someday at the end of time, a mass resurrection, nothing like what Jesus is doing. They were disinclined to believe that that was the case. 
Look at the list. Verse 7, it begins with Peter. Was Peter thinking resurrection? Well, let's think about the last time that we saw Peter. He had uh, denied Christ three times and had run away in total sorrow and anguish. Does that look like a guy who was thinking to himself, well, I can't wait for him to be resurrected so I can kind of patch things up with him? No. He ran away in sorrow. He wasn't thinking resurrection. Next in the list, we have, uh, we have the, uh, who's next? We have, we have the disciples. Thank you. <laughs> it's my fourth time doing this. I should know it by now. We have the disciples. And let's think of the disciples a second. Were these guys that were thinking about, you know, they're thinking resurrection? No. The Roman soldiers show up and what do they do? They are out of there. They're running away as fast as they can. They're looking out for their own backside. Are any of them going, well, I can't wait for him to be resurrected so that we can sort of get this all back in the way it ought to be? We're Bible characters after all. (laughs) The last thing that they are thinking is resurrection. Next, we have these 500. Now, that's a big number. 500. Hundred people that saw him alive, that Paul now appeals to as eyewitnesses to the truthfulness of the resurrection. 500 people. We don't know when Jesus made this appearance. Might have been in Galilee. We're not told that. But that's a big number. These are people that would be disinclined to believe. Because to say that Jesus was resurrected from the dead puts you at peril with the Romans who just crucified him. And the Romans were not people to mess around with. 500 people. I mean, how many is that? If I, I would guesstimate in this room, I'm thinking maybe 500 is like this section here. Maybe a little bit, first few rows right here. Something like that. Like all of you here. What are the chances if you're all like basically disinclined to believe in a resurrection, what are the chances that, that I could convince you that, that I was resurrected from the dead, all of you? Not very good, I would say. I mean, I see some, some kids here, and with the proper amount of candy, I could probably convince them that I had been resurrected. But it'd be very unlikely that I could convince all of you to believe something that you've fundamentally are not inclined to believe. And we could even think, what would it take? I mean, what would it take for me to convince you that I had been resurrected? Like you could say, well, you know what I would like to do? First of all, I'd like to see you alive. I got to see you with my own eyes. That'd be one thing. Second, I, I would need to hear you. I would need to hear you. Not a tape, not a video. I need to hear you. If I could hear you, maybe I would begin to believe and somebody's going, you know what? That ain't enough for me. I would want to touch. I want to feel the body. I want to know that it's not, this ain't a ghost. I got to touch him. Somebody else would go, you know what? I want to see him eat something. Because everybody knows ghosts don't eat eat something. Right? Guess what? Jesus did all those things to all these hundreds of people. He said, come up and touch me. Hear my voice. See that it is me. Watch me eat. He, he literally took food and goes. And the people thought, well, it didn't fall to the ground. He's not a ghost. He's real. He's body. He's physical. 
He did all the things for them that you and I would want him to do for us if we were ever going to believe that he was dead and now he's alive. And those 500 people, they saw it, they heard him, they touched him, and they said, this guy is resurrected from the dead. And many of them gave their life for that truth. In fact, Paul adds this comment about the 500. Many of them, or most of them, are still alive. Now, why would he add that? That's a, that's a New Testament equivalent of us going, well, why don't you call them? These people I'm talking about, they're still around. Go check it out on your own. They will tell you, listen, we saw him. We touched him. We heard him. He is resurrected from the dead. Go ask them yourselves. The list goes on. James is next in the list. James is Jesus' brother. What do we know about Jesus' brothers? They didn't believe in him. Now, this is not hard to imagine. You might think about for yourself how hard it would be for you to believe that your brother is the Messiah. You may be, maybe you had really good brothers, but I can't believe my brother is the Messiah. There's no way. You know, Satan maybe, but not the Messiah. <laughs> His brothers didn't believe in him. But James saw him alive, became a leader in the church, and also died. Died for the resurrection. James. And then, last of all on the list is Paul himself, the guy that wrote this letter. You realize the Apostle Paul was essentially a hired hitman by the Jewish leaders to go around and to jail and ultimately, in some cases, to kill anybody who believed in the resurrection. Now, why did they pick Paul of everybody to be the guy who goes around and does this? Because Paul hated the resurrection. He hated the church. He hated Jesus. And it was his joy and gladness to wipe out anybody that believed in the resurrection. What possibly could have convinced Paul of the resurrection? Well, Paul himself saw the risen Christ and it completely transformed his life and he became the greatest missionary of the for the resurrection in the history of the church friends all these people were people like you and me there are people like you and me and they were completely convinced that he was dead but now he is alive In fact, we could even ask the question, what more could Jesus have done? I mean, how many people do you have to appear before? How many many people do you have to talk to? How many people do you have to allow to touch you? How many people do you have to eat a meal with before we cross a line where we say, okay, that's enough. That is enough proof. He appeared to many. You might ask, why did he appear to the people that he did? Why did he go to Caesar in Rome and say, here I am, I'm alive. You want to know why? Caesar didn't know him. Some of you watch those CSI programs. Who do they call in to ID the body? Do they call in somebody that didn't know the guy? Is this Frank? I don't know. I didn't know Frank. (laughs) 
They don't call in people like that. They call in the, the family. They call in the friends. They call in the people that knew him. They are the ones who are able to accurately ID the body. Jesus didn't appear to people that didn't know him. He appeared to people that did know them so they could ID the body and they could be witnesses to the reality of the resurrection. I thought that was a good point. I could say it again. They are our witnesses. They are the testimony that Jesus was resurrected. And friends, the reason that this creed spends so much time on the resurrection is that the resurrection is the fulcrum of our faith. I mean, this is what the whole thing rests on. If Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, if he is still dead today, this whole thing collapses. This whole thing is a sham and you and I are wasting our time. There is no hope if there is no resurrection. But if there, if G, here's the thing, if Jesus, you want bottom line? Here's the bottom line. If Jesus was resurrected, if these hundreds of witnesses are reliable and true, it means that he was who he claimed to be, the son of God and the savior of the world. And it means that what he said is also reliable Namely, that all who believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. It means that there is a salvation that is available to sinners like you and me. Amen. And this leads, this leads to my, the question that I began with. Why today are there 2.1 billion people that are and 4 billion people that are about the resurrection? What's the difference? Well, I think the difference is that there are people that this resurrection is personal. It's not just general. It's personal. Christ's resurrection from the dead means their resurrection from the dead. And it makes all the difference in the world. At the same time, there are people that don't believe that. They're kind of like, whatever. Okay, Easter, whatever. And you'll see them on the way home. They're out mowing their yard and walking their dog and doing whatever they're doing on this day and thinking it's a nice day to get some things done. It doesn't mean anything to them. There's no joy. There's no personalness. The resurrection is not personal to them. What makes the difference? Well, I want to illustrate it this way for you, and I'm going to show you a picture. And this picture um, was taken in Haiti. As you know, a couple months ago, devastating earthquake happened in Haiti, in the Port-au-Prince area. And all these rescuers from around the world rushed to Haiti to do what they could. Eight days after the earthquake, rescuers uh, found buried in the rubble, an eight-year-old boy named Kiki. And they worked and worked and worked, and they were able to rescue Kiki out of the rubble. And there was a photographer who was there in the moment that he comes out of the hole and snapped this photo. And we have a little insert that shows the look on his face. I love that picture. That picture to me says it all. 
What do I mean by that? Well, look at the joy in his face. I mean, yeah. He doesn't come out like, thank you for rescuing me. Total celebration. You know, the whole world knows about the rescue in Haiti. You all knew about the rescue and all the things that have happened there. Everybody knows about the rescue in Haiti. But Kiki knows it in a different way than the rest of us. You want to know why? Because he was rescued. And the difference on this Easter between the people that cheer and the people that yawn is that the people that cheer see in Easter that this is the day that I was resurrected. This is the day that I was rescued. This is my day of salvation. This is the day that God, through Christ, pulled me out of the rubble of my sin and saved me. And the fruit of that, for us, is... And friends, I just want to ask this entire congregation here today... Does that picture in any way reflect your heart as you think about what Christ has done for you? Is this Easter personal to you? Is your faith in Christ a personal faith investment, a personal faith commitment, a kind of belief in Jesus that is a all for him? He's my Savior. I wonder if today might be that day where you cross that line. Here's what the Bible says, Romans 10, 9. If we believe, if we confess the Lord with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. The call of this creed, this old creed, it's not information. It's a call to belief. It's a call to faith. It's a call to transformation spiritual that is offered through Jesus Christ. And so I just want to go very slowly here through the creed. Here's the core. Here's the bottom line and ask you, number one, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe that he was buried dead in the grave? Do you believe that on the third day he rose again from the dead? My friend, believe in this and you will be saved. Today could be your day of rescue. After the service today, as you leave, we'll have at every exit here, we've got pastors and leaders and prayer counselors. They're all wearing big name tags so you can identify them. If there is in your heart any sense of like, I'd like to talk to somebody about that, or I have questions about that, or I'd like to have somebody pray for me in my life, some issue that you have, some need, They are all there to minister to you as you leave. Just walk up to them and say, could I talk to you? And they are ready to go. We also have resources in the commons, books and some information that uh, could also be helpful. We encourage you to check it out. But let's just celebrate one more time as this creed says, he died for our sins. He was buried dead in the grave. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Amen. Praise the Lord.